Uh, our scripture reader today is Jeff Heidloff. Our scripture reading is Revelation 3, 7 through 13. In honor of God's word, please stand. Uh, reading from Revelation 3, 7 through 13. Listen as I read. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have put little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie, behold. I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you, because you have kept my word about patience and patient endurance. I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have, so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he get, go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, so we're in a series uh, working through the seven letters that Jesus wrote uh, to seven uh, specific churches uh, in this uh, region, uh, modern-day Turkey, um, these, these seven, seven cities, seven real cities, seven real churches. Uh, at the same time, there's an invitation here to recognize that the book of Revelation almost always has an eye towards imagery or symbolism. And uh, a lot of scholars believe that the reason why Jesus selected seven churches is that seven is the number of completion or the number of perfection. And so Jesus chose seven real churches, but maybe the reason why he chose seven was to give us some sort of a, a picture of his whole church, his whole body. And as we've worked through these letters, <clears throat> we've had the opportunity to, to consider that and to see what it is that Jesus sees when he looks at his, his body, his, his, his local churches. Uh, last week, uh, we had a remnant here. Uh, it was spring break, and I know it's still spring break for some. Uh, but last week, we got to look at the fifth of the, the seventh churches, and we got to look at the church in Sardis. And as we looked at the church in Sardis, we, we learned that they had a, a, a very, very small church building, and they uh, had to pack themselves in there, and that is where we get the origins of the word sardine. Um, no, that's not true. Uh, <clears throat> but if you were here last week, um, it, was, it was hard. It was a hard saying. And, and what Jesus had to say to the church at Sardis was, um, uh, I, I, based on your feedback, uh, kind of shook a lot of us uh, in, in, in helpful ways, in ways that caused us to ask legitimate questions about our walk with Jesus and about our own fruit and fruitfulness. And uh, Jesus, in his grace, Jesus, in his kindness, uh, spoke to this church in Sardis, and he said, you've got to wake up. You, you've got to wake up. You, you, need, to, you need to recognize um, what, what, is, what is going on. You've got a reputation. All kinds of people out there think that you've got it all together, 
Uh, from the outside, you look like you have it all together, but I, I, I know what's really going on. And there might be lots and lots of activity, um, but there's no, there, there, there's no heart. Uh, he says there is a remnant there, and he calls them to, to strengthen what remains. But he says even what, what remains is about to die. And so it's a very stark letter. It's a very, the, all of these letters are quite short, uh, but the, we, the letter last week was, was a heavy one to consider. This week, uh, we get to look at the sixth of the churches, and it is the church in Philadelphia. And uh, the church in Philadelphia, you know, obviously we have a, a city in the United States uh, named Philadelphia, and you might think of it as the city of brotherly love. And um, one of the reasons why that is is because the, the, this, uh, this Greek word, it's uh, a compound word, and uh, the two words are brother and, and love. And so it transliterates uh, into English in Philadelphia, and, um, and there was a city uh, in the first century that uh, Jesus writes a letter to uh, in this little town. Um, like Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, if you've ever been there, uh, this Philadelphia was a city on a river. Uh, the river that this Philadelphia is on is not uh, a very significant river. It wasn't a major thoroughfare. Uh, so that had an impact on the, the size and the importance of that city. <clears throat> um, but it was, it was a city that got Jesus' attention. It was a city that Jesus saw. It was a fertile region, uh, kind of like our region actually here. It was known for growing grapes. It had good fertile soil. But it was also plagued. Uh, it was plagued by volcanoes and earthquakes. And at least two of the earthquakes were incredibly devastating. Uh, one uh, almost destroyed the city, or basically did destroy the city. And uh, there was uh, funding from outside the city that was given to, to rebuild it. And so it had been shaken to its, its core and had fallen, basically fallen apart. Um, and so that's, that's a, uh, each week we've tried to give a little bit of a snapshot of what we know about that city in the first century, and that's the snapshot uh, of Philadelphia. Uh, as we walk through these verses today, uh, it's, it's a relatively short letter, just verses 7 through 13 of, of Revelation 3. I, I, I want to look at, at Jesus' openness, our weakness, and shared strength. Jesus' openness, our weakness, and then shared strength. If you look at verses uh, 7 and 8, you see the introduction that Jesus gives in every one of his letters. He uh, says, here's what I want you to write. Write to the church this. And then Jesus introduces himself, and he gives just a little description of who he is. And every time he reaches back to chapter 1 of Revelation and pulls one little slice of the description of him in chapter 1. And so throughout the various letters, Jesus has done that. Uh, to the church at Thyatira, he talks about his eyes, flame of fire, feet burnished like burnished bronze. With the church at Sardis, he reaches back and he says about the seven spirits of God that, that, that he holds in his hand. The, these are all references back to the way that Jesus is described in Revelation chapter 1. As we come to this letter to the church at Philadelphia, the, what, what Jesus reaches back and grabs is he says, here's how I want you to introduce me to the church at Philadelphia. The words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. Now, this is not as much a direct pull from chapter one, but what he seems to be playing off of, he calls himself holy, he calls himself true. Chapter one affirms both of those things. But then he references having key, having a key, the key of David. And in chapter one, 
he's, he, he's described as somebody who has keys. In chapter 1, he's referenced as the one who has keys to death and Hades. And that phrase put together, death and Hades, basically means that Jesus has the keys to the realm of the dead, to, to death in general. That Jesus, that Jesus has the keys. Here it says he has the keys, uh, the key of David. And, and the point is, that he goes on to say, is that he, he's the one who opens, and if he opens it, nobody can shut it. And he's the one who shuts it, and if he shuts it, nobody can open it. And so the point is, he's got keys, and his keys work. His keys work. Jesus says he's, he's holy and true, and he holds the keys. So as we come to his comments then, he always introduces himself, and then he's like, this is what I want to say. He tells the church at Philadelphia what he's done with those keys. And what he says to the church of Philadelphia in verse 8 is that he has opened the door. He says that he has set before them an open door. Now, I, I want to pause on this idea that, that Jesus is reminding the church at Philadelphia that our God is the God who opens things. If you were to do a, a run through the Old Testament, there's, there's more than what I'm going to mention right now. But if you were going to run back, this is, this, this is in the book of Revelation, right, at the very end of the Bible. If you were to just run through the Old Testament and then through the New Testament up into the book of Revelation, you, you would see all kinds of times where God is at work opening things. In the early pages of the Bible, he opens a womb of a 91-year-old lady who, who cannot have children. Her name was Sarah. And God had promised a baby to Abraham and Sarah. She couldn't have children, and God opens her womb and keeps his promise. In Exodus 14, God, as the people of Israel are, are uh, fleeing Egypt, they're stuck uh, up against this body of water, and God comes and he opens the sea, splits it in half, and his people are, are rescued. In Exodus 16, he opens the heavens to provide bread from heaven called manna to feed his people in the desert. The very next chapter, Exodus 17, he opens a rock, and from that rock flows the water to, to give his people the water that they need in the desert. If you were to jump to the New Testament, you see him opening eyes and opening ears. You see him doing it literally. He actually gives people sight and gives people hearing. But he does it figuratively where he gives them spiritual eyes to see and spiritual ears to hear. On the cross, we're told that he opened the curtain between man and God. So much so that the writer of Hebrews in chapter 10 says this, that God's people can now enter the holy places by the new and living way that he opened, that Jesus opened for us. So there's this recognition that God is the God who opens things. He's constantly doing it. In just a few chapters in the book of Revelation, we're going to see that Jesus is the only one who can open the scrolls. He's the only one worthy to do it. And we got it right here in verse 8, that he's opened the door. I've opened the door for you, Philly. I've opened the door for you, Church of Philadelphia. We have a God who opens things. Well, what does it mean that he's opened a door? It could mean a number of things, but the two that I think are at least that I want to talk about this morning, one, that he's that he, the, the welcome of God. What, what, what does an open door symbolize? That Jesus has opened the door to relationship and intimacy. You know, every single Sunday, we read this, this uh, invitation. We read it this morning. 
And we say that this church opens wide her doors with the welcome from Jesus. And often as we talk about that invitation, we, we want to remind ourselves that the reason we do what we do is because of what Jesus has done for us. We're, we're reflecting what Jesus has done for us. We love because he first loved us. In Romans 15, 7, it says, welcome others as Christ has welcomed you. And so there's this picture of an openness, the open arms, the open door, the welcome of God. When Jesus says, I've opened the door to you, Church of Philadelphia, he's affirming the fact that he's opened the door with the welcome from God. It's an invitation into relationship and intimacy with the God of heaven. Christ says, the front door's open, come on in. It's, it's propped open for you. Come on in. Come on in. Sit, sit down. Let's share a meal. Let's spend some time. The welcome of God. There's also a, a very real way in which the, the Bible indicates that the, uh, the, the concept of an open door is actually related to the opposite, almost, you would say. The sending of God. To join God on his mission. To go out. And to, to, to trust him and to walk in his ways. M multiple times in the New Testament, specifically with the Apostle Paul, we hear his mission, what he's doing in the world described. His ministry opportunities are described as open doors. That God opened a door. That God opened the opportunity. That as, as, as Paul or the other apostles are following Jesus on mission, they, they recognize that the opportunities that they have in front of them are things that God has opened before them. He's opened those doors. God has sent them on his mission, and he's giving them opportunities. He's, he's giving them uh, uh, chances to, to serve him and to walk with him. So I think it's likely that Jesus is telling Philadelphia that they are both welcomed by God, and they are sent by God. Sometimes we talk about this in regard to like a rhythm, breathing in and breathing out. This recognition that we are, we are welcomed in to the family of God, not by anything that we've ever done. We don't deserve it. We could never earn it. It's by grace alone, but we are welcomed in through the person and work of Christ. And then as we are welcomed in, we realize that there's a mission that God is on in the world. And he's called his people to be part of that mission. And so in a, just as we're breathing in, then we, we're breathed back out. We're sent out as the people of God on his mission in the world. To, to love our neighbor, to serve our neighbor, to share the gospel, to walk in obedience. Jesus is inviting them to realize they are both welcomed by God and they are sent by God. This idea of being sent by God or being on mission, having an idea or uh, uh, having eyes to see the open doors before you. You know, I just mentioned that Easter is, is only two weeks away. And almost every Easter, I say something, I get up on Easter and I'll say something like, man, it's really great, you all look nice today, really glad that you joined us, and it's, it's fun to see, see so many people here. Um, but you know, what we're going to do is what we do the other 51 Sundays a year, gospel representation, that we're gathering here and it's Easter Sunday and we recognize there is something unique and something special about Easter Sunday, but every Sunday is a time where we gather and we recognize, you know, why does the church gather on Sundays at all? Historically, it's because Jesus rose on a Sunday. So every Sunday is a mini Easter. Every Sunday is an opportunity for us to come and celebrate the resurrected Christ. 
But we also recognize that Easter still holds some level of cultural clout. That there are a number of people who live beside you, work with you, who are in your circle of influence, who are going to care about the things of God a little bit more around the week of Easter. And maybe this year, maybe there's an invitation for you. Maybe there's a way for you to consider what it looks like to be sent by God to the people in your life. Maybe as we sit just two weeks out from Easter, maybe there's an opportunity for you to ask the question of God, what doors have you opened for conversations for me to have with my coworker? You know, the data is, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's super sad right now. Uh, there is, uh, it seems like every week more and more polling is being released about the impact of the last two years and COVID uh, on church attendance. And what percentage of regular church attenders are back to regular church attendance? How many people over the course of COVID have quit going to church altogether? How many people uh, over the course of COVID realize that they love Jesus, but they don't necessarily see a local church as being an integral part of walking with Jesus? You know, connections are decimated. People's spiritual communities are upended. For, for a long time now, we as a church have said that if you think Sunday morning is sufficient for your walk with Jesus, you misunderstand the life that Jesus is calling you into. Sunday mornings are essential, they're important, but they're not sufficient. It's, it's not enough. You, you, you need to be walking through this world with other people who are walking with Jesus. You need to have a spiritual community around you. And our church, our, our staff here is, is working, and we're, we're going to be working more and more in the months ahead uh, to, to rebuild our internal community, our, our, our church family, the ministries that we, that we offer and have offered over the course of time. And as you think about these next couple weeks, maybe there's someone in your life that it makes sense for you to invite them to come to church with you on Easter Sunday, maybe, and that, that, that would be a good thing. But it might just be an invitation to anything. It might just be an invitation to go on a walk. It might be an invitation to have them over to your house for dinner. As I said a second ago, connections are decimated. People are lonely. There's a million spiritual questions. The people of God need to be on mission for God. We need to be sent by God and recognize that we're sent by God. We've been welcomed in, and now we are sent back out. Well, Jesus says this door is wide open, and get this, no one's able to shut it. Think about that. If those two things are right, the welcome of God and the sending of God, that God has both opened the door for us to come in and to be with him, and he's opened the door to send us out on his mission, he goes on to say nobody can shut it. It's not closable. These, these avenues are available to them because Jesus says they're available to them. When Jesus opens something, no one can shut it, and he's opened the door for the church at Philadelphia. Well, Jesus' openness, what about our, our weakness? Jesus sees their situation. In verse 8, he says, I, I, I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power. I know that you have but little power. 
Man, who wants to have that said about them? I, I can't imagine that that was super encouraging when the church at Philadelphia got the letter, you know? Uh, I think probably many of us like to think that we can hide our weaknesses, kind of keep them, you know, hidden behind us and other people don't see them. And many times, in several of these letters, Jesus has said that phrase, I know your works. And here he says, you don't have a lot going on. You, you, you have little power. Unlike the church in Ephesus, unlike last week, the church at Sardis, they, these churches had reputations of being big and significant, of having you know, activity and ministries. And you know, they, they're the church with the billboards, and they're the church with the big uh, auditoriums. They, they're, they're known as big. When Jesus looks at, at the church here in Philadelphia, he says they're weak and they're small. But listen, their weakness doesn't phase Jesus. If you look at the end of verse 8, he commends them. He says, I know that you have but little power, and yet you've kept my word and have not denied my name. It doesn't phase Jesus at all that this church is small and weak. It doesn't phase Jesus at all that they have little power. He actually commends them. And what does he commend them for? Changing the culture? Transforming the school system? Revolutionizing the marketplace? None of those things. So much simpler. He looks at them and he says, you've kept my word and you've not denied my name. A couple verses later, he commends their, what he calls, patient endurance. You know, I've run uh, four, four different marathons, and I am not fast at all in my marathons. It is a description, it is a, it's the definition of patient endurance. I am barely putting one foot in front of the other. And Jesus is looking at this church and he looks at these churches, this church, and he says to them, way to go, putting one foot in front of the other. Way to go, little, weak church in Philadelphia. I commend you for keeping my word and not denying my name. That is patient endurance. You might not win the sprint, you're not winning the marathon, but you're not quitting. Jesus celebrates them for just not quitting. I hope that's an encouragement to you. I, I want you to also notice that Jesus breaks his pattern with his other letters, and he has no condemnation for them at all. Nothing. No critique, no condemnation. The only other church he does that with is the church in Smyrna. Every other church, he has something to critique. With this little, weak church, you have little power. There's not a whole lot of activity going on there. Nobody even knows who you are. It's just this little group of people. And yet Jesus looks at them and says, that's my boy. That's my girl. You're my people. 
way to go. You have not quit. You have kept my word. You have not denied my name. And I just, all week long, I, I have it right, right in my notes. Can we just sit with that for a second? Jesus does not need to invent problems. When Jesus looks at the church at Philadelphia, he is not such a critic that he has to find something wrong. I mean, think about this. The, the church at Philadelphia, there's no way that the church in Philadelphia is perfect. There's no way that they're perfect. It's, it's not an option. But when Jesus looks at their church, nothing rises to the level of corporate concern. How, how beautiful is that? How beautiful is it that Jesus looks at this church and he recognizes correction is important? Correction is necessary. Critique is important. Critique is necessary. But here, Jesus wants the church in Philly to bask in the sunlight of encouragement. Jesus wants the church in Philadelphia to just to, to hear him say, well done. And look, Jesus is not ignoring sin. Jesus is not setting his holiness aside. He just wants to give him a pat on the back. He's doing this because he is holy. He's doing this because this is what Jesus does. Jesus comes alongside us and he washes us clean. In his letter to the, book in, to the church in Ephesus, Paul, he says that this is what God's doing. He's washing his bride with the word. He's making us pure and clean. This is his work. It's not, he's not putting his holiness aside to look at Philadelphia and say, just thumbs up, guys. Here's my critique for you. Here, a hug. It's a hug. That's my, that's my critique for you. Do you, think of, you, do you think Jesus is just a harsh critic? Do you think that when Jesus looks at you, he, he just must be shaking his head? There, he just must be annoyed or rolling his eyes or you know, be, just putting up with you? Do you think that he sees your problems as 10 times bigger than your gifts? Well, here's evidence. It's evidence that he sees us, that he knows how we're doing, that he knows what's going on in our hearts, that this idea of hanging in there and waking up the next day and being faithful again, that that matters to him. Yes, they are weak. They have little power. And most of the scholars say it, it appears that any observer of this church would understandably have the same conclusion. They would look at them and say, yeah, not much going on there. Unremarkable. I've driven by that church so many times. I, I don't even know what its name. I don't even know what it's called. But that doesn't phase Jesus. There's a, a story uh, a few years ago. I got the incredible opportunity to preach through the, the gospel of Luke. <clears throat> and that's a really big gospel. And that was back when I preached really long sermons. And I did a really long series. So it's like long sermons in a long series. And uh, it literally, we, we had a few small breaks, but it literally took four years to get through the, book, the gospel of Luke. <clears throat> but one of the best passages, or one of my favorite passages, is Luke chapter 7, the very first verses. And if you have your Bible and you want to turn over there, you can just kind of uh, glance over it while I talk here. But it's about this centurion, and his servant gets sick. And there's just a phenomenal interaction with the religious leaders and Jesus and the centurion. And, and here's basically what happens. 
There's this centurion. His servant is sick. You see that in verse 2. This servant is very valuable to the centurion. He matters a lot to this centurion. In verse 3, you find out the centurion hears about Jesus. And he sent to him elders of the Jews, so the religious leaders of the Jews. And they, they went to Jesus to ask him to come heal the servant. Okay, so the centurion says to the religious leaders, the Jewish religious leaders, would you go get Jesus and ask him to, to heal my servant? Look at verse 4. They come to Jesus, the religious leaders come to Jesus, and they plead with him earnestly, saying, the centurion is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. So he's a philanthropist. He might be, he might be, uh, have converted to Judaism, might not have, but he he is obviously a Roman soldier, he's a centurion. And as religious leaders show up to Jesus, they show up to Jesus and they say to Jesus, the centurion is worthy, so do what he asks. Okay? Keep reading. Verse 6, and Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Now, do you find it interesting that Luke uses the same word, worthy? That when the, when the religious leaders show up to talk to Jesus, they show up and say the centurion is worthy, so do what he asks. But the centurion himself says, I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy for you to even come in my home. But the big question is this, what does the centurion say next? Does he say, I'm not worthy I'm not even worthy to be in the same room with you. I'm not worthy to have you in my house. So, so you, you shouldn't do what I ask. I'm not worthy. You, you, sh- you shouldn't do what I ask. Is that what the centurion says? <laughs> That's right. Give that, give that kid a, some candy. <laughs> no, the religious leaders say he's worthy. Do what he asks. If the centurion would have said, I'm not worthy, don't do what I ask, he would be working in the same exact mindset as the religious leaders. Because the religious leaders are working this way. You get what you deserve. If you're worthy of getting your prayers answered, then your prayers should be answered. And if you're not worthy of getting your prayers answered, then your prayers shouldn't be answered. If the centurion believed that, that's what he would say. I'm not worthy, don't don't grant my request. But here's the shocker. Do you want to know what the centurion says? He says, I'm not worthy. Would you do what I ask? And the centurion shows, he's like, I know I'm not worthy. I know I'm nothing. I know I don't deserve deserve for you to even come into my house. So would you please do what I ask? You know what Jesus says about the centurion? If you read the rest of the verses, This is what he says. I've not seen faith like this anywhere in all of Israel. I've not seen, this is the best faith I've seen. This is the greatest faith because the centurion understands. He understands it's an upside down kingdom. He understands that the way things work here is it's not what you deserve. If you got what you deserved, you would be in so much trouble. 
And as Jesus meets with this church in Philadelphia, as he writes to them and communes with them, he looks at them and he says to them, I know you're weak. I I know your works aren't making headlines. I know you're not making this huge splash. I, I, I know that. I see that. I see that you have little power. But guess what? All you need is need. All you need is need. The centurion came to Jesus and he's like, I don't deserve anything that you could offer me. Would you help me? All you need is need, but most people don't have it. Do you? Boy, it's easy to buy our own press, to read our own press, to believe our own press. It is really easy to convince ourselves that our resume is strong and powerful and Jesus must look at it and just be like super proud that that, that we're on his team. You know, I think it's much more likely that the right evaluation for pretty much every one of us is, boy, we have little power. Boy, we are weak. But Jesus, would you help us? All you need is need, but most people don't have it. I think that Jesus looks at this You know, sometimes, man, it is so logical to try to avoid our neediness, to try to hide it. The Church of Philadelphia couldn't avoid it. I think there's a very real way in which COVID has made our church and maybe other churches as well. It's made us realize our neediness. It's made us recognize that we need to be depending on Christ, not on what we can do. Now, I remember reading one time a guy, a guy who was critiquing his experience of, of the Christian world's prayer life. And he said, my experience of Christians praying is that they basically pray just up to what they're physically capable of doing. And they ask God to help them get that done. You, you see, that, that, that is us looking in the mirror and saying, what kind of power do I have? Okay, Jesus, could you help me get that done? Instead of actually recognizing that we are, we are, we are weak, We are needy. We have little power compared to Jesus. We are in desperate need of his help. Maybe you can relate to this. Sometimes it's embarrassing to have to trust Jesus. I've been part of churches before where the financials are, it's a train wreck. And it's almost embarrassing to have to, as a church, pray that God might provide the needed resources to pay the bills to not let the, the, the global mission support drop. And it's almost treated as an embarrassment to have to go to the God of heaven and say, we need your help. But Jesus doesn't think that. When Jesus sees this church of little power, he basically says, look, when you see your need for me, that's reality. That's not embarrassing. You actually, you're actually reading the room. You're in need. Sojourn Church, we are in need. Whether the financials are good or not, whether the headcount is good or not, we we are in need of the God of heaven at work on our behalf. You know, Jesus says in Matthew 11, he says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. 
Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Eugene Peterson, in his, in his translation called The Message, this is how he writes it. Are you tired? Worn out? Burned out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me, and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. In Matthew 11, Jesus says, everybody who's tuckered out, everybody who knows they can't get it done, come, just come, and I will give you what you've been looking for. It'd be right to understand that is the call of the gospel. Until you realize that you are in need of a rescue, you're never going to ask for the rescue. Until you recognize that all of your efforts are insufficient to ever earn you heaven, to ever earn a right standing with God. Until you see that, you'll never ask for his help. All you need is need, and Jesus loves to meet that need. This is good news for anyone who recognizes that they actually have little power. So, Jesus' openness, our weakness, and then last, let me just close with shared strength. Now, I, I, there's a lot of verses here, verses 9 through 13, so I'm not going to be able to get through, through all of these, but I've done this in previous weeks too, just kind of picking out one, one of the ideas that Jesus offers or lays out for, for this church. And, and here's what I want you to see. That Jesus says that for those who conquer, he uses that word conquer throughout these letters. It means victorious. He says, for the one who conquers, I'm going to make you a pillar in the temple of my God. Now, he's talking to this church that has little power, weak, frail, breakable. And yet he says, if you hang in there, if you remain, I'm going to make you a pillar. A pillar in the temple means permanent, strong. And then remember this city's history. They've had a problem with earthquakes. Their whole city has fallen apart. And Jesus looks at them and says, not you. Not you. If you're with me, you're like a pillar. I'm going to share my strength with you. The, the one who does not deny my name will stand fast and sure, no matter what storms come, no matter what trials come, no matter what tragedies you face, you will be like a pillar in the temple of my God, the eternal temple. Well, there's some good news. In verse 11, he says he's, we, we, we find out that Jesus is coming soon. Now, granted, this was almost 2,000 years ago. But Jesus said to them, I, I, I am coming soon. Hold fast. I'm coming soon. Hold fast. Now you might say, what's going on? Jesus has waited 2,000 years. Well, look, the original readers, they had lifespans like you had. I have lifespans. 80 years, maybe, maybe a little bit more. Jesus is, is, is coming soon, but if he doesn't come in our lifetime, our lifetime's not long. Jesus says, I'm coming soon. Hold fast. 
I, I love the fact that when Jesus says, I'm coming soon, what he doesn't follow that with is, I'm coming soon. You better go crazy. We're running out of time. You better go. Go, 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 go. Rush, rush, rush. That is, that is not what he says. No, he revisits the call for his people to hold fast. Maybe a way to think about it is this. If the story of the world was a baseball game, Jesus is not looking at the scoreboard with two outs in the bottom of the ninth inning and wringing his hands. He, he literally calls them to keep doing what they've been doing. Hold fast. Now, now look, holding fast is not necessarily easy, but I think it could take some unnecessary pressure off. Maybe you're here today and you think you should be producing more for Jesus. Well, maybe you're right. That's a worthwhile question to spend some time with. That's a worthwhile question to consider. But would you be willing to start here? Would you be willing to start with this frail little group of Christians in the church of Philadelphia almost 2,000 years ago? Who did what? What did they do? They, 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 held, they, they held fast by keeping his word not denying his name. Would you be willing to see how Jesus celebrates your daily, simple, steadfast, ongoing relationship with him of just keeping his word and not denying his name? You know, sometimes I get the sense that we are so interested in hitting a grand slam for Jesus that we miss out on just the joy of being in the dugout, the joy of being with him, and it's like Jesus is saying, just, just keep showing up. You, you might hit a grand slam. That, that might happen. But just, just keep showing up. Keep coming to practice. Keep doing the drills. Keep showing up for the games. Keep going up to the plate. He knows you. He knows your neediness. And he doesn't flinch. And he closes by saying, whoever has an ear to hear... Let them hear. Whoever has an ear to hear this, let them hear it. Jesus offers more reward. He says, I've got a crown. I'm going to give you a crown. I'm going to write your name down. I'm going to give you my new name. There's all kinds of rewards that Jesus offers to this frail little church for just being faithful, for just hanging in there, for keeping his word and not denying his name. It's a good question to ask, should I be producing more for Jesus? That is a good question. But let's start with the daily faithfulness of keeping his word and not denying his name. Now, as we come to the table, I want, you to, I want to invite you to think about the fact that Jesus is coming soon. He just said that. He is coming soon. So let's hold fast. And Jesus is not sitting around waiting for you to fail. When he looked at the Church of Philadelphia, he did not have to dig deep enough to find something wrong. He just looked at them and said, way to go. Jesus is not a harsh critic who ignores your situation or your heart. He celebrates every way and every time that you keep his word, every time that you hold fast his name. So as you come to this table, thank him for that. Rest in that. Receive that. Our practice is to get up and to come to one of the four stations whenever you're ready. There will be some prayers on the screen behind me, some prayers in the bulletin. There will be some uh, quiet music playing for a few minutes. Uh, the prayer team is available in the back. 
And uh, we invite you to come. Take the bread and the cup. Servers, if you'll please come. Prayer team, if you'll uh, go to the back. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this, this good news uh, that Jesus has to share with the Church of Philadelphia. We thank you that Jesus used his keys to open the door and that the door that he's opened can't be shut. God, we want to receive that as an invitation to be in relationship with you and as an invitation to be on mission with you. God, would you help us not to be too arrogant or too proud to see our own weakness, but instead recognize that that neediness, that brokenness, that weakness can actually be a gift in the upside-down kingdom, can actually reveal the reality of the situation and how desperately we do need Christ to rescue us. And God, we thank you for this beautiful offer from Jesus, his readiness, his commitment to share his strength with us, to make us into pillars in your temple, strong and permanent forever. God, this is good news. Would you help us to hold fast? Would you help us to keep your word? Would you help us to not deny your name? In Jesus' name we pray, amen.